Thank you for tuning in to Spill the Beans. We're here to amplify the voices of coffee farmers and roasters and share them with our fellow coffee consumers through authentic conversation. I'm your host, Farah, and I'm here to help demystify the coffee experience for producers, roasters, and consumers. We're here to ask the hard questions about coffee, wherever you are in your coffee journey. Today, our story is going to be a little bit more global with our friend, James Harper of Filter Stories. Some of you who are coffee enthusiasts may know James from Filter Stories and MarginalizedFarmers.com, but we're very excited to bring him on today to talk about the world of coffee as we know it and the ways that we can go ahead and be conscious consumers in the way that we drink and transform coffee. Thanks, James, for joining us today. Do you mind just telling us a little bit about your background and how you decided to get involved with specialty coffee? Well, should I start the story? I worked for the Bank of England for four years. It's in a former life, looking after during the, the global financial crisis. I was a regulator during, during the, those crazy times and looked after investment banks and all that kind of thing. That's all in the past, you know, these days. These days, I, I'm more involved in radio and coffee. Those are two very good things to be involved with, I think. I tried to get a job back when I quit finance and I ended up in Melbourne working for a big coffee roast, well, just working anywhere in coffee in Melbourne in the cafe scene. Like no one would hire me, no one. Partly because they were like, well, this guy, is, he's not going to hang around for very long if we do train him. But I eventually get, ended up working for a roastery there in Berlin as well. I worked for the Barn Coffee Roasters and they're very well known. I outgrew that role. And there are two things really that I kind of want to do. One is that I need to explore the supply chain. I was working at this roastery supposedly a very famous roastery and like you know here i was t- talking to customers and cafes about the coffee and the farmers and i was like i literally know nothing i'm working on a very limited amount of information that's passed on to me through a whole bunch of middlemen and the owner of this company and i was like i just, I just don't think people really know like we talk about transparency we talk about supply chains and helping the farmer but i you know i mm, i'm not really feeling it so that was one thing. And the fact that I outgrew the role kind of led me towards making, making, decided to make the podcast to make filter stories. When I, when I first started, I just had literally a microphone in my back pocket and I was stage managing the World Barista Championships in Korea. I recorded a few, whole bunch of stories and one of them turned out to be the Martin Shabaya episode about this guy from Kenya. And it's a great little story. It's about the, the best barista in Kenya who had a dream of opening his own cafe, but he can't. Because Kenyans don't drink coffee. Why is that? They grow some of the best stuff and it's all exported, but they drink tea. And it's mostly because it's a financial thing. Partly financial, partly because there's no culture of consuming coffee. They're just like, this is, you know, it's like gold, you know, it's just this thing we, we take out the ground and we, we sell it, we make money, you know, we don't have a use for it. And we can go really far back into history as to why that is. And I, in, in my opinion, it's, it's kind of a colonial legacy, you know, people plant these things and they sell it to the, the global north and end of the story. Do you mind just telling us a little bit about the Global North and what does that mean for our listeners? Yeah, it goes by many names. A very fraught term that used to be thrown around a lot was the third world and the first world. We have developed and developing countries. It just means, you know, the G, kind of with the G7, maybe the G20 and the rest. Thanks so much for confirming that. So Martin. So Martin, here's Martin and he, and he had his dream, you know, no one drank coffee in Kenya, but he wanted to open a cafe and his idea was to win the World Barista Championships to bring fame and attention to Kenyan coffee to then have the grounds to open his cafe. And I follow him for three years as he tries and fails 
and fails and tries and keeps going to achieve his dreams and it's a surprise ending. And so that was the first episode that I created and it touched the nerve. I realized there was something about that, that theme, the theme of the fact, here's this guy of a story we haven't heard before who comes from a country that we don't often hear about struggling with these really, these really big issues that are way bigger than him. And we are all kind of connected to. The Martin story made me realize that there's, there's something about covering the untold stories in coffee. Uh, and so I, I began that journey. And so, oh, goodness, you fast forward 20 episodes and like, you know, I think of at least oh, six, seven months on the road in field recording lots of interviews. It's all the stories from where coffee comes from. And it's basically all the marginal people within the coffee industry illustrated in a kind of NPR, This American Lifestyle with strong stories and, and important messages. It shows you what's really happening behind the scenes in the coffee world. What's the most impactful story that you've seen interviewing these people in coffee and bringing to light their stories? I was in Nicaragua last year and I uh, partnered with an education charity and they helped me speak to connect with a coffee farm worker living on, living on kind of accommodation on a farm in Nicaragua. And she, she was a mother and her daughter had an aspiration to be an English teacher. And every day she would walk about an hour to school. And at the time I was there, there were a lot of rumors circulating that there were gangs of men who were roaming around and it's not safe. It's just frankly not safe. And it was an exploration of why is Sophia, Sophia is the name of the teenage girl who dreamed of being an English teacher. Why is it so hard for Sophia to get to, you know, to realize her dream of being an English teacher? And it was just an exploration of that. And the challenges the family had, they lived on $5 a day. The challenges Sophia has in the education system in, in rural Nicaragua, which, you know, Nicaragua, it's, you know, it's a develop, developing country and in developing countries, well, anywhere really, rural communities tend to be much worse off than urban communities. So the state of the infrastructure and the policing and why cases of rape and assault don't often get reported, they're quite low down the priority list, and why the farm owner, why they were struggling to provide the kind of future for Sophia that we all wish, you know, they could do. And, and, and the farmer was struggling with low coffee prices in a, in a really tough market. I spoke with an economist at the end of it all to be like, what can we do as consumers to like reach Sophia and to help her realize her dream? And the end result was, well, frankly, coffee farm workers. I mean, we, we often struggle to even connect with the farmers you know, to know where our, who grew our, grew our coffee, let alone the farm workers who work for them. The money often, money always stops at the farm owner. We have these you know, international labor organizations which talk about the fundamental rights of workers across the world, but that's it's one thing for Nicaragua to sign up to these standards, and it's quite another to enforce them, you know, in what is a weak state. And there's Sophia, just wanting to get an education. It's, it's not a happy episode. It's not. Um, but it's, it is a reality for tens of hundreds of thousands of coffee farm kids in coffee growing countries. One of the things that I love that you do so well is you highlight a lot of these farmers that are marginalized. And we talk a little bit about the sea price, the, the commodity coffee prices, and how farmers might be exploited. One of the projects that you're working on is called marginalizedfarmers.com. 
Do you mind talking a little bit about that and how we might be able to look into a platform like that to go ahead and elevate voices? Um, yes, for sure. Yeah. So maybe the best way to explain that is to talk about the story of how I arrived at marginalizedfarmers.com. Last year, I was in Colorado and I booked a flight to San Salvador, the capital of El Salvador. And I went in there not really having so much of an agenda, not really knowing what stories I was going to collect. I just knew that I was going to dig and find a reality that wasn't being communicated to us in the global north. And oftentimes these are uncomfortable realities. Oftentimes importers and roasters would want to brush these things aside. And I'm like, no, let's look at them head on. So yeah, so I ended up in El Salvador. Very quickly, I discovered there was this history, brutal history, frankly, going back uh, you know, to the 1850s. You look at if you rewind to the 1850s El Salvador, it was a pretty, you know, a relatively equal place. I would have much rather been a Salvadoran in 1850s El Salvador than a European at the same time, in terms of social equality, in terms of standard of living, the weather, and everything else. And then what you saw is that there was a transformation away from indigo production, which was used in blue dyes, towards coffee. And there was also this, this political drive by the elites to industrialize their countries, to modernize. They didn't want to be these kind of fringe countries growing indigo and coffee. They wanted to have industry and to, you know, yeah. You know. So what happened is that, um, and this is not confined to El Salvador, this is found in many parts of the world. It was a process whereby land was taken from um, indigenous Salvadoran communities and given to the wealthy, those with capital who could develop these coffee lands. In the 19, one year in the 1920s, like 95% of El Salvador's exports were coffee. Like it went from a fractional amount to, to that in the space of about 60, 70 years around there. And there was a huge uh, amount of people who used to own their own land in, in, a, in a communal way. These were indigenous Salvadorans um, who all of a sudden now found themselves in conditions which today we might want to refer to as modern slavery. I mean, it's along that line. I don't know quite where you want to draw that line exactly. Um, you know, indentured servitude, all these sorts of terms. The point being, they kind of have to work and they're forced by government legislation to work. Long story short, by, by the time the early 30s come along, there's this kind of popular uprising fueled by the winds of communism. And there is a genocide. The political elite suppress uh, an uprising of, of mostly indigenous peasants. And Within 10 to 20, 10 to 40,000 people, it's, the estimates vary, were killed within three days in the West. And then you have a system whereby the, you know, land is power because land is money, money is power. And you have military governments which work more or less kind of in cahoots with this kind of ruling class who have mostly European roots you know, American, European kind of ancestry, relatively, relatively recent. Um, and then you have, yeah, then you have, you know, the conditions which create the Salvadoran civil war, which is just horrific. There's so much civil unrest that at one point they start redistributing the coffee lands to make it more equal. So that now, you know, at least a portion of, Salva of poorer Salvadorans now have access to their own land. And so, okay, so that's, that's a bit of a history lesson, right? <laughs> so where am I getting to with all this? So today, if you are a poor if you are a poorer Salvadoran and you grow coffee, you know, where can you sell your coffee beans? You can sell your coffee beans to, you know, the local mill and get paid whatever the commodity price is 
minus fees. That's kind of it. I mean, it, there's not really many places you can sell your coffee. And different mills pay different prices, but it's all pretty low. Specialty coffee is one of the few ways farmers are able to earn good premiums, sustainable premiums. And we're not just talking making a profit. We're talking making enough profit to be able to invest in the farm, to future-proof it with nice, good varieties that people in the, in the global north want to consume. Those who are able to access the specialty markets and the premiums that come with that, that give them, you know, uh, that, you know, allow them to both invest in the farm for the long term and give their kids a good education. Because at the end of the day, what's this all about? In my opinion, it's about giving the kids a good education so they have the option to choose what they want to do with their lives. So today, it's really the wealthy, people who have capital, come from historical wealth, have it a much easier time getting into the specialty coffee market. The specialty coffee market is very hard to get into. So what sort of considerations do our farmers need if they are trying to get into the specialty coffee market? There are high costs. It takes a lot of investment in terms of agricultural inputs, in terms of knowledge. And once you've grown this crop, which you've invested so much money in, it's also then really hard to find a buyer for it because the Specialty Coffee Club, the Specialty Coffee Buyers Club, is a very small, you know, tightly knit community. And unless you have a strong understanding of how the global north thinks, unless you have a strong understanding of um, what consumers are looking for, if, if you can't speak English, if you can't afford a flight, if you can't afford, you know, to put up the money to get the visa to travel to the, the convention in America to meet the buyers, how are you going to find the buyers to sell the specialty coffee to that you've just sunk all this cash into. And so what you find is that those who are really thriving today in coffee are those who tend to come from a lot of wealth, be they, you know, recent American or European immigrants, historical immigrants, you know, whatever the case may be, you know, this idea that we're helping farmers with specialty coffee. I mean, you're definitely helping farmers, but these aren't farmers who need our help. The vast majority of farmers don't have the education and the economic resources to access specialty markets. We buy specialty coffee and it's all great. And, you know, the coffee tastes delicious, but who's benefiting here? And I think that brings up a really interesting question and a question that we continue to ask and spill the beans is, what does quality mean? We throw out the term quality. We have all of our cuppers going to CQI, which is the, the coffee quality index. And giving grades to coffees and saying that it tastes like this and this is good quality and this is bad quality and how does our perception of quality and the way that we interpret quality impact these marginalized farmers and communities yeah you're creating barriers to entry i mean it's that simple <laughs> the more we obsess over extraordinary quality extraordinary flavors in coffee the more we are going to be sourcing from a very tiny, quite privileged group of farmers. I think that brings up a really interesting dichotomy when we think about specialty coffee, especially here in the U.S. and globally, wherever you travel in the specialty coffee community, everyone brags about how many points their green coffee was sourced from. As we think about coffee and as we think about trying to make coffee a sustainable crop for consumers, for roasters, for farmers, how do consumers and roasters 
need to change their behaviors in order to make sure that coffee is not only sustainable, but also promoting the right behaviors for our farmers and promoting safe and equitable communities for our farmers. So many angles to this. There are many definitions of quality here. You have the quality of flavors. That is one definition of quality. Pursuing quality of flavors will lead you to a group of farmers who could have sustainable farms regardless of specialty coffee through industrialized agriculture because they have the money and the know-how to do that. But specialty coffee has always had this kind of humanitarian piece to it. This idea that we can support farmers who are otherwise struggling in a pretty difficult commodity market, coffee commodity market. And that is a narrative that many consumers will hear. That is a narrative that many roasters will tell. Maybe roasters believe it to be true, even if the facts on the ground are different. Because many roasters may not know the truth. I don't know how many have taken the time to truly investigate the history of El Salvador and the socioeconomic challenges facing the poorer farmers out there and how, and how they really struggle to access this market. So as a consumer, the challenge as a consumer is that you are presented with information, marketing, from a bunch of roasters who probably mean really well. And the reason they're, ro they're in coffee is because they have good ethics and they want to do something that's good for the planet. And, you know, coffee is, you could be in cigarettes and oil. So, you know, coffee is much better than that, for sure. At the same time, don't pat yourself on the back too hard because the impact you're going to be having on people who frankly need your help, who are really struggling in the commodity markets, the chances are, especially coffee you buy, will not be reaching them. Yet you are told that it is. How do you disentangle the two? Marginalizedfarmers.org was an attempt to create a, a resource where I have done the due diligence to the extent that I can as a one-man operation to, to find roasters who connect with marginalized groups, marginalized producer groups who, who get premiums for their coffees, where roasters have gone, have, who've done much more than just buy specialty coffee because buying specialty coffee in and of itself doesn't really guarantee much anyway. All you, all you guarantee is it's tasty coffee. So what about the, that humanitarian angle that specialty coffee really prides itself on? Buying specialty coffee today won't guarantee you that, in my opinion. So marginalizedfarmers.org was an attempt to showcase roasters who have gone into origins and tried to deliver much more directly to farmers. It often means they have unusual business models. Often means these business models are hard to scale. They're quite utopian business models in many, many cases. They have real impact. Can you talk a little bit about how their business models might be different than a traditional coffee yeah, business sure. model? So imagine you're a roastery and you need coffee. You know, all right, let me let me call my importer and let's see what's on offer. You go to Peruvian, you go to, you go to Guatemala, and you go to Kenyan. And here are the prices and here are the, the delivery times and all the quality information. Oh, sorry, a little bit of information about the farmer. Great. Take your pick. Buy it. Boom. It's in, the, it's in your roaster. It's in a bag. Consumers buy it. Here's a nice story about the farmer that we got told from our middleman. That's the status quo in coffee and specialty coffee, for the most part. The challenge with that model is that many farmers don't even get a chance to be in the selection in the first place. When that roaster chooses between the Peruvian, the Guatemalan, and the Kenyan, many marginalized farmers did not get an option to be at that table. 
because they oftentimes struggle to have the capital and the education and all the rest of it that you need to be able to grow and then sell specialty coffee to these middlemen and to these, ro- to these roasters. So the farmers that are, so the roasters that I have found on marginalizedfarmers.org, here's an example. One example was Farmer's First Coffee. So it's a man who works in Honduras, who lives in Honduras, has a business there, and he partners with coffee farmers who grow 80-point coffee. You know, coffee is graded in, in points, and the threshold for specialty coffee is 80 and above. Anything below that is considered commodity coffee, and anything really high spec quality specialty is considered 86 and above. And a lot of roasters will focus on that 85, 86 and above and call themselves specialty. But getting 85 and 86 is really, really hard if you are a coffee farmer. It just takes a lot of information, a lot of education, a lot of money to get there. But that's where the premiums are. So this guy in Honduras, uh, his name is Rob, he knows local farmers who are at the 80 level because, you know, they, they don't come from historical wealth. They, have, they don't have access to the education and all the rest of it. So what he does is he works with them over long-term sources from them directly and pays a quality premium bonus directly into their hands. That's 50% above the commodity price into their hands, which is much higher than they would otherwise be earning. And for consumers, what that means is that you are able to taste a good coffee. This is a good coffee. And quite frankly, I'd be, you'd be hard-pressed to find a consumer that can tell the difference between an 83 and an 86-point coffee. I'm almost convinced of that. So it's good coffee that people are going to love, that you know the farmer has been paid so much more than the market rate was otherwise offering for those coffees. And as a measure of success, you know, he has developed relationships with farmers who actually, you know, they use the premiums to then move beyond him and find their own buyers. So to me, that's a mark of success. What, what he is offering is a, a ladder into the specialty coffee market. So marginalizedfarmers.org is that accessibility ladder that we consumers can support to help farmers, to help smaller marginalized farmers get into the more lucrative, sustainable, long-term sustainable specialty coffee markets to find, both high, you know, find the buyers and also the know-how and the money to invest to grow the stuff in the first place that is going to get them to the 85, 86 points and above. That's great. As we think about industries and marginalized communities, no matter what, having some kind of rope to help pull people up, especially when they haven't had that, is so, so incredible. In your opinion, has coffee been historically like a violent crop or has there been slavery associated with it? <laughs> of course. Of course. Definitely. Yeah, no question. And, 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 you know, crops planted in a kind of colonial system have, you know, anyone who's touched those crops without any kind of power has, you know, felt the effects of that, you know, sugar, cacao, coffee is just one. It's not confined to coffee, but yeah, for sure. I mean, the stories get horrendous. I think what's really interesting is how consumers today, the idea of paying more than three bucks for a cup of coffee is kind of sacrilege for so many consumers in the West. But when you think about it, what that means is that the reason it's $3 and affordable luxury, you know, focus on the affordable, is because it was planted and extracted in a system that did not spare anyone in terms of, you know, it had to be extracted at the lowest possible cost at any environmental, at any human cost, historically. And the infrastructure in which we source coffee today 
in the commodity world and even in the specialty world, frankly, is still based on, on the very deep supply chain that hasn't changed that much really in terms of where the balance of power lies. And specialty coffee, in my opinion, is a better alternative to commodity coffee just generally. It's still kind of bolting on to what is otherwise a very deeply unequal power structure in the supply chain. Consumers and especially roasters have, in my opinion, the majority of the power, the purchasing decision and money that goes and choose, in choosing how much money can, um, they, they want to spend. And it's a buyer's market, totally a buyer's market. And so the idea that now, if you talk to a roaster and you say, well, why doesn't a roaster want to spend more money? They'll often say, well, because consumers, our drinkers don't want to pay more. Why don't they want to pay more? Well, this is a really insidious thing about colonialism. It instills this idea that coffee can't be more than $3 a cup. And it's structured in a way where even if a roaster wanted to pay more, tried to pay more, it gets lost in the supply chain because there are so many middlemen. And each person, as you go towards the consumer, has more and more power than the person below them. And that has to fundamentally shift. How does that shift? I don't know. That's an interesting question. You should talk to the wine industry, talk to maybe other specialized industries. I don't know. But it starts with the consumer. It really does start with the consumer and acknowledging that the coffee that I spend is probably, the coffee that I buy these days will be a little bit more expensive or a little bit lower quality than I could otherwise get for my money. But it's going into what I believe is it's addressing and helping to address an imbalance in power in supply chains. And that's in and of itself worth the extra money, mix and match. Every dollar counts, every dollar counts. So if I can just recap that, it sounds like for a consumer, they should maybe not necessarily be seeking out those 86 plus coffees, but perhaps they should be looking at other things like the cost of their coffee and maybe looking at marginalized communities that they're purchasing from to go ahead and help to fundamentally change the way that we're approaching coffee. Is that yeah 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 uh, i think you just need to have an awareness you know listen we all love a, we all love a tasty coffee i love a tasty coffee as much as the next person also bear in mind if you only buy super 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 expensive tasty coffees the people you are benefiting are going to be a slither of already pretty pretty privileged people so what does that mean for everyday consumers that means you need to know where to go to find the the roasters who are shaking up the supply chain and offering better money, offering ladders to marginalized groups to get into this tight-knit specialty coffee buyer's market. That's what you need to do. Now, does that mean you need to taste, you know, less good coffee? Potentially. But frankly, you know, there's there's coffee as a need. There's this coffee as caffeine that we need to get to wake up in the morning and there's coffee as pleasure. And I think, you know, it's mix it up. That first coffee can be, for me, that, that first coffee is just give me some easy you know, tasty caffeine. I don't want to have extraordinary flavors. I'm not ready for that yet. And that's, that could be, you know, the coffee you source, um, you know, from, uh, you know, a roaster from marginalizedfarmers.org. And then the really fancy one could be the one that you have in mid-morning that you really take the time to, to make delicious. Mix and match. I think you touched on this earlier, but I'm sure there's other crops that are similar to this, but in your opinion, have you seen any commodity crops that have historically had systems of oppression associated with them that have shifted 
due to consumer behavior? Or is that still another thing for us to go ahead and be aware of? It's a very complex history. The history of El Salvador, for example, is a deeply unpleasant history. And a lot of roasters are reticent, really kind of throwing themselves into that world because it's super political. You know, it's a minefield. It's easier not to do that, especially if you're a business, because it can backfire on you, which is why I think it's all the more important for consumers to be more aware of the historical context and and, and the, the power imbalances and the people who are at the bottom of these supply chains that just aren't getting a fair deal. Because you, you won't hear it from many places. You really won't. It's a hot potato people don't want to touch. You see changes at the margin. A lot of these products, the specialty movements. The thing is, specialty coffee is considered like the front runner for a lot of these industries, which is kind of crazy to me because I'm like, whoa, we're the front runner and we've got to really fix things up around here if we want to have any chance of, you know, ticking that humanitarian box. Um, so a short answer, no. But I can point to other industries where the power balance is less skewed, still very skewed, but less skewed. And you look at the wine industry and due to the nature of the product, you know, you can ferment wine, you can bottle wine at the, at the vineyard and you can create a lot of value add by creating your own brand for your own winery and basically selling directly why it's, why it's special. And some coffee farmers are doing that, especially the very, very large historically wealthy coffee farmers are, are doing that with their coffees. But in wine, it's, it's, it's very much like it's very normal. And I think a part of that is it's an industry that comes from the, the global north. Like it's, it has its roots in the global north where you don't have that kind of global north, global south power imbalance in the supply chain. So people tend to be better educated, have more money at their disposal. They can make their own marketing for their own wine. They know how to talk the, the language of the global north. You don't need a visa to find a buyer. You don't need to buy expensive flights. You can't afford to find a buyer. There, you know, you have a vineyard in Germany and your customer's just down the road. And I think too, the one, the one interesting thing about wine compared to coffee, and we had a chance to touch on this in our last episode, is the concept of RTD or ready to drink beverage, which I think the coffee market is starting to get into. Do you see mm -hmm. potentially implementing more of these ready to drink coffee products are going to end up shifting some of that imbalance due to roasters and producers being able to generate coffee the way that they think it should taste? <laughs> nope. I <laughs> don't think so. <laughs> Maybe at the margin. Maybe at the margin. I think the trouble with ready to drink is that it's very roaster-led. In my opinion, roasters hold the most power in you know, the supply chain and they're able to create products that command even higher margins and put their brand front and center and minimize this, you know, the brand of the, the farmers. And the thing about ready to drink is that the market, I mean, we're talking about, you try and get a product on a Walmart shelf. I mean, good luck. That is, whew. So how is, how is a small little farmer supposed to even, even begin that task? And ready to drink only really works once you have some de some level of scale to afford, you know, the bottling in the factories and all that, you know, distribution. And that, and again, you you fall into that that kind of money trap where you just need to have a lot of money in the first place to do it. So I don't see that benefiting particularly marginal communities. I see that benefiting roasters, but I don't think roasters need very much help. <laughs> I think they're fine. 
Arosa can't, if Arosa can't figure out how to make a sustainable business, I have little sympathy for them, frankly. You know, other ideas that were floated around was like roasting at origin. And there are some examples of that which are interesting. There are a couple of challenges with, with that is that here's the interesting statistic, right? You grow coffee. Coffee takes, what, five years to grow? Like you, once you put the tree in the ground and you finally get a decent harvest that tastes good, that's like five years. And you put that, that into a roasting machine and in 15 minutes, you have tripled the value. And the thing is, the roasters are all based in the global north. And they, especially in specialty coffee, really kind of play on that, you got to have fresh coffee narrative. Because, you know, of course it benefits them because you're nice and local. But there is huge opportunity, I think, for farmers at Origin to be roasting their own coffee and to sell it as their own branded coffee. One of the challenges is that you have to get consumers kind of away from this idea that, you know, freshness is everything. It's important, but it's not the be all and end all. And frankly, again, I'd do the taste test. Can you taste the difference between a three-month-old coffee and a one-month-old coffee? And if you can, maybe you should be a professional coffee taster. The average consumer, frankly, doesn't taste the difference. Again, there are challenges to that model too. It's very difficult to scale. There's a reason that the massive roasteries, which makes most of the money, they're really big brands. They're all based in the global north. They're all based in Germany and America because it's actually cheaper to operate those gigantic factories, roasting facilities that churn out coffee by the ton, by the minute. That infrastructure is actually cheaper to operate in developed economies than it is in developing economies. So again, mm an explanation as to why the supply chain is structured the way it is. So here's, here's my real doomsday scenario, which I'm going to outline here. We look at what's coffee going to look like in 30 years time. Climate change will have been so brutal to many coffee developing, to, to, to many coffee growing regions. I, I've seen studies like 10, 5% of current coffee lands are going to be still suitable back in you know 50 years time. I forget the exact numbers. It's really quite distressing. So what does that mean? Uh, a lot of coffee from a lot of origins, it, there'll just be a much, much less of it. Look at El Salvador today. It had its lowest harvest, not ever, but one of its lowest harvests for, 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 for decades was just this year. So coffee is basically on its way out in El Salvador. When back in the 70s, it grew a quarter of the world's coffees. I think it was the fourth largest coffee growing country and it lost a lot of coffee recently. And a lot of that's down to climate change which then impacts other issues, which I document in, in various series, if you're, if you're interested in that, in, that, in that aspect of it all. But who is going to be growing coffee and, and going to be sucking up the demand of coffee? Brazil and Vietnam. The future is going to be a lot of Brazilian coffees and a lot of Vietnamese coffees. I mean, they'll be really tasty and interesting. But if you want to go really extraordinary, interesting origins, you know, in 50 years time, it's going to be like the Hawaii model or like the Panamanian geisha model, whereby... That's more of a seller's market, in my opinion, because what they're selling is so rare. And that's when you finally are able to address some of these power imbalances in the supply chain. And that's just through the brutal laws of supply and demand kind of working their way through. So in 50 years, you see that the big threats that are happening right now, whether it be climate change, coffee, rust leaf disease, some of these economic imbalances for farmers and supply chain inequalities. You're saying that in probably about 50 years, the model is going to shift where coffee is going to become more rare as producers like Vietnam and Brazil, who, Brazil. if I recall correctly, they're 
producing mm-hmm. a lot of robusta coffees, which are uh, hearty. And Arabica. Brazil Arabica. Yeah. Arabica, right. Yeah. So yeah. more potentially Arabica varietals are going to be mm-hmm. rarer. So Brazil is a big Arabica producer, and I think it will continue to be a big Arabica producer. There's also like a lot of really interesting genetic research going on to make tastier coffees from hardier varieties. You can go to the the Specialty Coffee Association's lectures podcast and you can hear all about the various initiatives with world coffee research. If things don't change and climate change is left unchecked, this is going to be outcome. There are mitigating factors, as I said, like with new varietals. Also, economic development. I mean, look at Costa Rica. Fewer people these days are involved in coffee in Costa Rica than they used to be. And that's because the country has just developed so much economically. And which is good, right? I mean, you want, you want children to have an option. Do you want to work the family farm or do you want to become an engineer? And I've met, I've met Costa Ricans who faced that question and they chose both. And I, and I think that's the best, that's, that's where we want to be ultimately. So economic development is an important yeah, component to, to all of this. And that helps to um, give more power to coffee producing countries as they have has become also and there's a, a trend in coffee producing countries where they actually tasting or they, they consume their own coffees more and more and you look at thailand as an example of where a lot of thai coffees are just consumed internally and that's a great outcome in my opinion because that's a much more equal balance of power and it should should lead to uh, a more equitable uh, distribution of wealth from the from the consumer's money down to the farmer. Frankly, there are many things that you know coffee drinkers. That's and that's the thing about you know <clears throat> marginalizedfarmers.org. We can have an impact if we want to have an impact and help the situation. We are but small pieces in these big trends which are going to affect the future of coffee. And we can have an impact, and our and our money does have an impact. It, you know, is it going to change the world? Yeah, probably not. Will it change someone's life? It could. So, you know, what matters to you? Right. And I love that you say that because I think consumers and my friends know this. I'm by heart a capitalist, but I'm a human-centered capitalist. And I I love that Mm. you say that every dollar that you make makes a difference in someone's life. And maybe it's not going to change the global supply chain, but maybe it is going to make a farmer's child be able to go to school so she doesn't need to walk an hour to get there worry about potentially being assaulted on her way and actually if i can update my advice too i think if you want to drink the really delicious expensive coffees then consider also making a donation to the really great charities working out in the fields providing rural education is there a way that people can go ahead and make these contributions oh easily yeah loads of organizations the one that i know very intimately is project alianza which are based in nicaragua uh, el salvador and few other countries and you just go online and you donate it's that simple i i know the operations I've, I've seen them in action i can vouch for what i've seen we can address these problems and at the same time enjoy a good cup of coffee that's awesome so drink great coffee make charitable donations know where things are coming from your caffeine yeah. keeps you woke and so does uh so do your purchasing choices yeah there's, there's a lot to unpack there it's a lot to unpack and it can get very overwhelming for the poor little consumer being like, I just want to drink my coffee. Why do I have to go through this history lesson? A human ethics lesson. I think food is political. Food is political. You kind of get away from it. Supply chains are inherently political. 
you know, where there's power, there's politics. So as we think about coffee, especially in the Western world, there's a lot of major coffee brands and a lot of consolidation under large corporations, like for example, JBC, where you have companies like Blue Bottle who are represented under there, Nestle, mm-hmm. Starbucks, et cetera. And for a lot of consumers, mm-hmm. they may not necessarily understand the coffee that they're drinking or where it's coming from. And what would you say to someone who wants to make an impact, but really doesn't know where to get coffee from other than their local Starbucks or their local Dunkin' Donuts or wherever they're used to getting coffee? The cafe scenario. Hmm. Gets harder. It gets a lot harder. <laughs> um, I frankly don't have very much advice here, except there are very, very few cafes I've come across that challenge or address the imbalances I've spoken about. So few. I mean, unless they're prepared to drive for a couple of days across America <laughs> with a cup of joe. <laughs> you know, I think you just need to be aware of what power structure you're supporting with your money and who is not getting a chance to sell their coffee at sustainable prices and what that means for their children. And if you really care, you might want to consider purchasing your coffee differently and changing your habits. Like this takes work. This is work. I mean, this is not a fun message to say. We consumers are so used to being like, oh yeah, we can fix climate change by just making some technology that's just going to fix it. And it's like, well, yeah, uh, you can hope for that because we've made it so easy for us like, for solutions to be presented for us and we don't have to work. We just have to be a few clicks away and we've sorted a problem. But if you want a really high quality barista coffee, the market's not going to give that to you. And, and at the same time, you know, help to change all the problems we've spoken about. So what does that mean? It means a bit of work for you. It means you've got to pay a bit of money to a charity. It means you need to brew, you know, beans at home better so that you don't need to go out to get your barista coffee. That's helpful. It's hard to shift consumer behavior. And I think there are people who definitely want to do the right things, but I think it's just a matter of how do you get people to start, right? Like, is there a place that someone who doesn't know much about the coffee supply chain can start? Or is there ways that we can inform our friends about ways that their purchases are impacting farmers? I think the stories we tell really matter. And through story that we understand the world. We make sense of the world through story and the morals that we hold are given to us through story. So we need to expose ourselves to stories of realities away from the marketing of of a lot of roasters who may or may not be helping to change things in the right way. Uh, In a better way, I should say. It's just a couple of stories. I mean, it's not many, you know, but there are many conversations you can many sustainability conversations you can be a part of and listen to online a lot of webinars going on the SCA does the specialty coffee association does a whole bunch of stuff there's a lot of material floating out there there are courses you can do but at the end of the day it comes down to information through story and ultimately having empathy for someone who is kind of invisible on the other side of or buried deep in the coffee that you drink and how do you reach that person and how do you tell that story that's kind of and that's what i've been trying to do with filter stories that desire in people where they can make you can make a huge impact with your purchasing decisions you really can and it feels good it does feel good being good feels good that's the sell really that's awesome 
Well, thank you so much, James. This was super helpful. And we're really excited um, that you had a chance to come share some of these stories. And for our listeners, we hope that you have a chance to check out Filter Stories and marginalizedfarmer.org. So thank you again so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on the show. It was a lot of fun. We hope you enjoyed today's coffee conversation. This podcast was produced by Far Qureshi and Carlos Guzman. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and rate this podcast. If you especially liked what you heard, please find coffees that resonate with you and continue to give back to your communities in more ways than just your productivity at work. Tune in next time to spill the beans with us.